You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. From where I stand right now, I'm very bullish on gold. I'm very bullish on uranium and that we could have a whole other conversation on uranium, but um, it also was doing very well for its own reasons leading up to Russia. And now with Russia has even more reasons to do well. Um, The base metal side of things, the fundamentals remain very strong. The green energy revolution isn't going anywhere. The supply side is insufficient for a lot of them. The risk of recession adds a complication, like a wrinkle to that outlook, where if we do have a recession, then that momentum will pause. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. I'm speaking today with Gwen Preston. She is a resource investor, also writes a newsletter covering the mining stocks. Find more information about what Gwen does at resourcemaven.ca. Gwen, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been uh, quite a few years since you've been on the show. And there's a lot happening in the world. There's also a lot of volatility, especially in commodities. Nickel for one up 60% in a day, then down 15%, back up 15%. What are the opportunities, key opportunities that you're seeing in the markets right now? It is a crazy time. I mean, it's it's difficult. My general, I write my letter once a week and I generally try to sort of capture everything that's gone on in the markets, right? Like what's gone on with the base metals and the precious metals and, you know, some of the other commodities that I like to pay attention to. Um, and, and that all has to start with a macroeconomic look. And it's it's been impossible to actually cover everything in the newsletter on a weekly basis because there's just too much. Um, so what are the key opportunities looking forward? Well, I mean... The biggest story of the day, and I'm I am one of many saying this is is certainly inflation, right? Inflation was here; it was very significant. Um, inflation had precipitated a changing monetary stance, you know, for the first time in in like twelve years. I always say we've had an accommodative environment for twelve years. I know that there was a tightening cycle, from you know, for a few years in there, but it, there wasn't really a tightening cycle in there. So I say we've been in an accommodative environment for twelve years, twelve years, and we had shifted to a tightening environment because of inflation, and that's significant in a lot of ways, right? And so that's what was before that. That was all already in place before Russia invaded Ukraine, and all that was already in place really supported gold because the Fed is behind on inflation and so real rates are negative and inflation is very top of mind and and all of those things are really um, supportive of gold. The other significant gold pro was that the shift in monetary environment was changing investor sentiment on a whole, right? This whole shift from growth stocks and of course growth stocks had been it right especially since the covid crash but even for longer than that growth stocks have been it hugely speculative tech stocks have just been runaway darlings it was like easy investing that was starting to change and so there was a shift from growth to value there was a change in risk sentiment these things were all happening before russia and that was very supportive of gold at the same time the green revolution is a very real thing And that was very supportive of base metals. Maybe not every single one, like zinc is probably pretty well supplied, but you look at copper, you look at nickel, there's there's depth, you look at uranium. The green energy revolution was also a very bullish factor for the base metals. So, you know, go back to mid-February and I was very happy. I was like, things are very well set up for metals going forward. 
Then we had Russia invading Ukraine, um, which changed and didn't change things. It didn't change anything on the gold side, to be honest. I mean, I think the gold argument is stronger. I think the what uh, investor risk sentiment is as yet unknown. I think that there's a huge debate out there right now as to whether we're heading into a recession because of inflation or not. We do know that inflation is higher than it was before Russia. And that's for very tangible reasons, right? That's for the price of aluminum. That's for the price of wheat. That's for the price of uranium. That's for, those are very tangible reasons. That's for the price of oil, primarily, and natural gas. Very tangible reasons why inflation is now higher. Um, and higher inflation bodes well for gold. And it, it increases people's awareness of recession potential. Whether the recession is coming or not, I truly don't know. I mean, people are split on it. I'm split on it. I'm watching manufacturing data to see if that starts to trend down. That's one of my more uh, forward-looking um, data points. I don't know whether that's going to happen. So from where I stand right now, I'm very bullish on gold. I'm very bullish on uranium and that we could have a whole other conversation on uranium, but um, it also was doing very well for its own reasons leading up to Russia. And now with Russia has even more reasons to do well. Um, the base metal side of things, the fundamentals remain very strong. The green energy revolution isn't going anywhere. The supply side is insufficient for a lot of them. The risk of recession adds a complication, like a wrinkle to that outlook, where if we do have a recession, then that momentum will pause, right? The depth and duration of that pause, again, I don't know because I don't know whether this recession is actually happening, but that's an awareness I think that we all need to hold on to. For now, the trajectory of those metals remains up, but I'm just watching that the recession indicators to see if anything happens there. So my my go-to investments right now are certainly uranium and gold, and I still am investing in copper, but I'm just staying aware of the potential for that to um, to get hit a bump in the road should we end up in a recession. Could you dig a little deeper into your uranium investment thesis in light of what's occurred in Russia, especially with Russia, how it enriches so much of the world's uranium? And if the world is moving away from Russia and is concerned about Gazataprom being under the control of Russia, maybe, how do you see that affecting the uranium market? I mean... <laughs> It's it's only bullish. You, you summarized a lot of the key stuff right there. So we already there's a lot of people who um, follow uranium and had already focused on what they call sort of jurisdictional supply risk for uranium for a long time. Right. And that's because a lot of uranium comes from Kazakhstan, Kazatomprom, um, which has obviously Russian influence control. And so there was a lot of conversation about and this has been a political conversation as well right should the us strategic uranium supply trying to bolt trying to grow and encourage domestic production of uranium in america because they don't want sort of in an arm wavy way to be reliant on um, risky jurisdictions or unfriendly jurisdictions for this key fuel because it is a key source of electricity for america and for a lot of countries will be increasingly so going forward because of the green energy revolution and I don't need to remind anyone that any move away from oil and gas really encourages uranium. Like any any move away from natural gas encourages uranium. That's just the way that's just the way that that equation works. But like you say, there's uranium mining, and then there's turning yellow cake into fuel rods, and th th those are very different processes. And like you say, Russia actually controls more than half; it's like sixty percent of the enriching and fuel production capacity in the world. And so that's a very real risk. And I, I am sure that the risk of losing access to that enrichment and fuel production. 
capability is pulling forward the contracting cycle. I know that was a lot big mouthful that I just said, but in the uranium world, there's two prices, right? There's the long-term price and there's the spot price. We all watch the spot price and the spot price is certainly interesting and significant. But what really matters in powering a bull market in uranium is when the utilities start to sign new long-term contracts. And that's what's been missing in the uranium market since Fukushima. The Fukushima disaster happened. The uranium spot market got flooded. There was also too much production anyways. And so there was all this excess supply and utilities, nuclear power plants didn't have to sign long-term contracts because there was uranium available everywhere. They could just pick it up left and right. That has all changed in the last few years. The world's producers got together and decided that they needed to turn their market around. They, they cut back on production. They started sequestering supplies. That's, you know, whether it's in investment vehicles like Sput or whether it's producers simply buying uranium and holding it like Uranium Energy Corp or lots of others have similarly done. And so they've changed the spot market. They've dried up the spot market. And that was already prompting utilities to start signing new long-term contracts. We saw signs of that when um, Cameco talked about its um, Q4 results. And so sure, they'd signed, what was it, 30 million pounds of long-term contracts in 2021, which is like, okay, that's a number. That's some, it's not a dramatic number. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, we've signed 40 million pounds in January. And you're like, sorry, what now? And that's exactly what we've been looking for is contracts to start picking up. And I think going back to that complicated sentence that I said, the, the potential to, to lose reliable access to the ability to turn yellow cake into fuel will only encourage utilities to start signing those contracts more and sooner. And that is the the real force in a, in a uranium bull market. So I really think it has pulled itself forward. I don't know if you participated in that um, Rick Rules Uranium boot camp last weekend. I got to watch a bit of it. And I as soon as I'm done this interview, I'm going to watch a bunch more because they just sent out the recordings. And I'm very keen to see some of the other insights that were revealed there, which I think will dive into this, this sort of topic more. Gwen, um, you mentioned the EV revolution and key to that is cobalt. Although after the cobalt spike in, I believe, 2018, uh, the price fell off. But I had Paul Robinson from the CRU group come on a few months ago and I asked him, what, what are you most bullish on for this year? And to my surprise, he said cobalt. Have you been paying attention to cobalt at all? I have to admit that I have not paid any attention to cobalt. And now I'm curious. Okay. Uh, do you know what the cobalt chart looks like? I don't even know. <laughs> you know what? I don't have any cobalt juniors in my uh, portfolio, so I haven't been paying that close attention. So I was just kind of trying to pick your yeah. brain. What are you most bullish on? You mentioned uranium. Is that your number one for this year or? I think that, um, yes, I think that for it sort of depends a little bit on uh, uh, your categories. Uh, by, by which I mean, if you want sort of low risk, sort of sustained upside, then I think investing in gold and, and you know, maybe like a, a gold developer, like a montage or an ore zone, like that kind of thing. That's a very reliable, low risk bet right now, because I, I think there's very modest risk in the gold price. And I think there's a lot of upside in the M&A space. And right. If you're interested in in sort of a little bit of a more volatile dance, then I think uranium is the place to be. And I say that because I say that almost out of habit because uranium is usually such a volatile market. I almost need to break that habit, I think, because this market, this uranium market that's shaping up is very robust. Like the drivers of this market are very robust. So I, I get the sense that this one will not be the spike 
and sharp down that previous uranium bull markets have been. I'm sure it will overshoot and come off to some extent, um, as most bull markets do. But I think this one will be more sustainable. So um, I don't think it's a uranium market where you're going to have to pay attention every day and make sure you get out as soon as you know things start to look a tiny bit frothy. Um, so I would say those who are looking for commodity upside, yeah, definitely throw a uranium company into the mix. Like I, I'm very bullish on uranium. I think that um, we, you know. Between, you know, when SPOT, for those who aren't listening, that's the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, right? This is a huge new investment vehicle that's coming to the market. They're going to get their New York listing in a couple months. That's going to open up a whole bunch of new liquidity. Are they going to get a whole bunch of new buying in this context where we now see articles regularly in major media about how nuclear is a solution to the elevated energy security problem that you know Russia has has put in our face. Yeah, I really think that uranium is is a force right now. So over the last year or so I was presented with a lot of private companies wanting to go public opportunities and I found myself not investing because especially in the last year I could buy these companies that had a very low enterprise value, small market cap and it was a quality project. Yes, they might not be fully funded but I just had a $6 million to $10 million market cap for an exploration company with a good team and a good project. I wasn't going to do a pre, pre-value money, you know, a $20 million pre-IPO deal. Any thoughts you could share on how you played the last year? Did you see similar type uh, thinking in what you were offered? Yeah, absolutely. You did a good capture there. So there's a couple of things to unpack in, in that question. So first of all, the, the pre um, trading versus the trading. That has been a dance. I mean, that's always hard to, to navigate. You never, it's very hard to know how a new company will be taken in the market. Um, but uh, years ago, when I was newer in the space and newer in investing in these early stage opportunities, I used to presume more regularly that the market would love it. And then I got disappointed many times when, you know, it would come to trade and then it would slide immediately or three and a half months after coming out when the financing shares come to trade, came to trade, it would slide. And, um, and so now I more regularly will wait for a company to come to trade. I just, I feel a lot, especially because I do have a subscriber base and as much as I don't want to lose money, I don't want to lead people into ideas that that don't work out. And so I'm just much more comfortable waiting for the market to say, okay, what do we actually think of this new company? And, and let's let the market value the asset and then let's play it like a normal stock. So what the, the, the news that comes out has an impact on the valuation. And so then you're betting on it based on what they're doing and whether that has good odds of success. So I'm with you that it's been very hard to understand IPO valuations. And so I have shied away from them quite a bit. I would say even in the last month, I've four different deals have come to me where the valuations were like 25 to 35 million out the door. And they maybe had some ounces or some pounds in the ground and an interesting team. But I was always like, you know, I see parallels out there trading in the market that are worth half that. So I'm going to wait till you come to trade. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I'd say the other uh, thing to unpack just in there is an investor's general um, approach. What I mean there is people often ask me like, what's your top pick? And I always have to turn that around and I say, what do you, what kind of investor are you? So like, how engaged are you in your portfolio? Do you check on it 
on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? How much do you want to check on your portfolio? How much risk do you want to have? And so those answers determine whether you should be buying the $6 million Explorer or whether you should be buying the $45, $65 million developer or resource grower or, you know, discovery moving to first resource, those have a lot more, sure, they're more expensive to enter, but the upside is more reliable. It's not reliable. This is still exploration, but it's more reliable, right? So it starts also with the kind of investor you are. You need to be playing the game that's appropriate for you. When on that note, I have a number of friends when they find out what I do, they say, okay, give me a stock pick. I'll throw 5,000 at it. And I'll say, I don't, I don't want you to do that. I said, I'm not giving you a stock pick. If you believe gold's going up, first off, find out why gold's go up, going up. If you believe it is, just buy GDXJ, unless you're willing to devote, devote a lot of time because there's just too much. And then they blame you, of course, when the pick doesn't go right. Yep. <laughs> and they all don't. So <laughs> any thoughts there to share or... Yeah, no, I'm the same. I have a lot of trouble. Uh, Even my family, like, you know, brother and my parents, it's hard, um, which is ironic to some extent because I run a subscription newsletter, but it is um, tough when those who are close to you, close to you, want you to just give them an idea that will work. And again, you, you have to pay attention. You have to be engaged. You have to do the investing that's right for you. Sometimes something will stand out to you and you'll just be like, you know what? I really think that this is going to work. And so maybe there's opportunities. There have been times in the past where I have felt very comfortable, like Great Bear almost throughout its trajectory. I was comfortable as that story evolved and as it became clear that the market wasn't catching on to the insane paradigm shift that was the discovery of the LP fault. Like, so there's, there's the odd story where I'm very confident in the upside. Um, but the most of the time, this whole market is too volatile, right? Like why is gold trading where it is today? I feel like gold should even be higher than it is. So there's, there's so many factors that are out of our control and that don't necessarily act the way that we expect them to that. Um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta dive in. You've got to commit some time, make some decisions about how you want to invest uh, and not just ask someone for a stock. And I wanted to ask you about Great Bear and how you played your exit on that one. You were in at about 15 or 20 cents. Is that right on that, on that stock? Yeah, I remember. I think the first I was in with a private placement. This was, or this was twenty seventeen, um, and yeah, I can't remember the price. Twenty six cents or something. Twenty twenty nine cents, I think, because I remember the takeout price was twenty nine dollars, so it was a perfect hundred bagger. So that did was, you calculate like your average cost basis on your exit? How did you play it? Could you share? So when you get a winner, right, it goes fivefold, and sometimes, yeah. honestly, I have a hard time selling. Or sometimes I might be tempted to sell it all. How, of course, it's, it depends on the situation, but maybe walk us through your rationale of how you exit your exit strategy for Great Bear. For sure. So, um, in the first um, uh, year and a half, when the Great Bear story remained primarily classic Red Lake discoveries, so they had the limb zone and the hinge zone. So, it wasn't um, a new kind and new scale of gold deposit, it was a classic kind and scale of gold deposit, good ones, but you know, it was what it was. Um, you know, it was getting some traction and I definitely sold on the way up. So I sold, you know, some at a few dollars. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I definitely sold some on the way up. And that was important too, because that, that was in 2018. There wasn't a lot of stocks out there that were doing well, but there were opportunities because I remained bullish um, sector wide or in terms of like the, the general outlook for metals, I was bullish. So I needed to be blunt, capital that I could rotate into other opportunities. So I did sell some on the way up. Then two things happened. Um, they discovered the LP fault. 
And I, you know, had a bunch of meetings with Chris Taylor and wrapped my head around fairly quickly the fact that this was a paradigm shift in the scale of what they were delineating. And the COVID crash happened. So both of those were significant events for that stock. Um, when the COVID crash happened, I sold half of my portfolio fairly quickly and then re-entered after gold had bought, had bounced. Um, so you sold at that point for personal reasons, not because you saw something fundamental in the company that changed. It had nothing to do with the company. It was just the big picture. I mean, we all know what happened in, in March of 2020. It was insanity out there, right? Um, and I just needed to protect. Um, I just needed to get to cash for a while because I didn't know how terrible it was going to be. And then re-entered fairly quickly. So I, I don't think that 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 obviously increased my cost base relative to that initial point, but I think the exit and entry were pretty similar. Um, and then I was for months thereafter, as gold was gaining and Great Bear was putting out results that kept reinforcing the quality and scale of that discovery, I kept buying. And of course, I wish I'd bought more, but um, I did keep buying all the way up till about $8, maybe eight or $9. And I don't really know why I stopped. Um, it's funny in the news. I mean, I, I still dipped in a few more times, but the significant buying sort of tailed off. And that's one of those mental games, right? When you've, when you've bought a stock for three, for 29 cents, for $3, for $6, and then it's trading at $15, even though I was writing in my newsletter, if this thing gets a bid, it will be 50% above the, the share price. That on its own was reason to keep buying, but it's just mentally tough to spit to pay $15 for a stock that you have previously paid $8 for. <laughs> one of these, right? It's one of these silly mental things where you know you should, but it's still tough. Um, so yes, there was buying and selling all the way through. What's your take on putting all your eggs in one basket? You know, concentrate to get risk, diversify. You know, people say diversify, but do you really have the outsized gains in your portfolio if you widely diversify with 40 mining stocks versus say eight? So I think there's two different, um, so, yeah, I have a bunch of comments on this. I'll try to keep it tight. I think, um, so take copper, take a porphyry explorers, right? We've seen companies like Philo Mining demonstrate, remind us just how valuable a major copper porphyry discovery is, right? That, that stock is worth $1.8 billion or something now, right? This has been a stock market darling in the last 18 months, two years. Um, and that's because they discovered a major copper porphyry. That discovery has to start somewhere. And there's a lot of companies out there searching for copper porphyries. I think if you want to have the chance to ride a copper porphyry discovery from the beginning to Philo, obviously they won't all get to Philo, but anyways, then you have to own six copper porphyry explorers. And you got to be patient too, right? Because Philo didn't yeah. happen overnight. <laughs> exactly. You have to own them. You have to be patient. You have to keep up with the iterative process that is exploration. Okay. They drilled, they hit something. What does it mean? What did they take from it? What's the new plan? What's the new data? So you got to be pros patient and you have to own quite a few. So that approach argues for owning lots of stocks, but you can't just own a whole bunch. So I own like six sort of porphyry explorers because I, I, I need to have good exposure to that arena. You know, I have a good number of, of silver explorers because again, it, it's about it's about shots on net, right? And so you got to increase the number of shots on net. And that approach really matters on the discovery end of the spectrum. Once a discovery has been made, then the gamble sort of shifts and you have to 
pay attention to how the market is taking the discovery and your, of course, assessment of the quality of the discovery and the potential that it has to get bigger and better. And once there's data to work with on that, like you've hit it there, there's been a discovery and there's data to work with and there's market response to see, then consolidating, concentrating in on and concentrating your holdings towards the ones that are working can really work. I remember I was just at the Metals Investor Forum conference two weeks ago and a, a gentleman was chatting with me and he, I mean, it, it was so fantastic to hear. He had bought Great Bear on my recommendation and he did what we said. He just kept converting stocks of his that he kept selling stocks of his that weren't performing and putting the money into Great Bear. And he just kept doing it. And he, you know, didn't used to have outlook for a comfortable retirement. And now he very much does. And it, I mean, it's so incredibly heartening to hear that, but it was a cool story from just a very recent tangible tale of, and this is a guy who doesn't do a lot of mining investing. So obviously great that he tagged into such a great story, but he was like stocks that weren't doing well, I would just sell them because why would I own those versus this great bear that had this incredible momentum? So I think there's two stages there. You got to have broad exposure on the discovery end, and then you have to maybe think about concentrating once there's more data to work with, and therefore you can have a better concept of where it might go. Excellent answer. Yeah, last year, your biggest winners and losers, are you willing to share? And what did you learn particularly from, from your winner, but also from your loser? Absolutely. So my biggest winner for sure was Great Bear. And that obviously was several years coming. Um, but last year was the year that it crystallized, certainly with that um, takeout offer from Kinross. So, and, and I mean, again, huge percentage gains on Great Bear. And happy to, I'm happy to emphasize that story because I think that there were so many aspects of it that were truly phenomenal, just from the person, from Chris and Bob, how they approached it, the techno, the, the techno, technological, that's not what I meant. The technical um, approach, the, the new approach to rocks, the, the structure of the company, like the way that they told the story, their communication abilities, all of it just really made a lot of sense. So I'm very happy to sort of lean on that as my greatest win for sure. On the loser side, I mean, um, there's a few uh, where I lost, you know, 40% or more um, through 2021. And I was, I actually made a list of them before because you said you, you warned me that you might ask me this question. And it's interesting to look at the list because there's quite a range of things on that list um, and reasons why that happened. So there's um, Montage Gold, which you know, was a new company, jurisdictional, they, they have a project in Cote d'Ivoire. So, you know, a, a jurisdiction that not, not everybody's comfortable with, but this is a company that is like pushing this thing ahead at light speed and it's now just about ready to build. So I think, can I learn anything from that? I don't know. There was, the market wasn't great. Um, it was arguably in the boring phase, even though it was a very compressed version of the boring phase for a stock. I don't really know what to take from that, um, from that story. There were quite a few explorers that um, faltered, but that's just the nature of exploration, right? And quite a, some of those have since turned around. So like Blue Lagoon is one that slid through a lot of last year, but in 2022 has retaken most of that ground again. And, and that's sort of characteristic of exploration, right? And uh, the lab delay factor was a very real one. Blue Lagoon <clears throat> did a lot of drilling 
in 2021 and didn't get to put out a lot of results, um, at least until late in the year. So there's nothing to, to take from that other than to remember that that's a factor. <clears throat> Blue Lagoon uh, has a project in, in uh, so Southern BC. Uh, one comment on that might be that Crestcat Capital has come in now twice to invest in Blue Lagoon. And it's a reminder that Crestcat <clears throat> has a lot of um, influence, I think, still when they come into a stock, especially a second time they're really endorsing an exploration idea. Um, and since there's so many exploration ideas out there, I think investors certainly pay attention when, when a credible name does endorse one, uh, for better or worse. Um, there, I didn't do well on a company called Sassy. Um, and that was a reminder to me that I really dislike highly seasonal projects. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that so one located? Sassy, Is that the yeah, BC? In the Golden Triangle okay. of BC. So there, the exploration season is super short, right? Three months. Um, and then when you when you combine a super short exploration season with those lab delays, you can't do a second phase of exploration because you don't have the results from the first phase. And basically, they just didn't get much done on their project last year. And the market didn't like it. And so, but I have over the last few years liked the golden triangle less and less because it's so hard to figure out what to do as an investor with that really short field season. So I, I've sort of shied away from those short field seasons and Sassy was maybe, I don't know if it was the final nail in the coffin, but it certainly was um, was one there. To their credit, they did also establish a Newfoundland portfolio and spin out a new company there called Gander Gold. So there was some upside to that, which I now own shares in a, in a Newfoundland explorer that I think has some interesting potential. So there was an upside there. And then I'm going to name Silver X um, as a as a company that didn't do well. And I think the lesson that I take there. So this is a company that's developing, uh, re redeveloping um, a silver mine down in Peru. Um, I think um, the lesson that I took there was twofold. One, the main lesson was really to that I have to always really temper expectations for how quickly mine restart work can happen. And it's always like several times slower than they initially think it's and going to be. And more expensive in this environment too, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And so that um, if you take initial timeframes at heart, you will be disappointed. And it's easy in a bullish silver environment to, you know, get excited about a new silver company and then and then you can then you can get disappointed. And and I've learned that lesson before, but I'm not the smartest, you know, so I sometimes have to learn lessons more than once. So those were some of my losers. Um, I definitely had some nice winners as well. Great bear leading amongst them. Um, but yeah, several of the others have, you know, you know, bounced. Like I say, Blue Lagoon has bounced already. Some of the other explorers. Kuya is another Kuya Silver. Had a bit of a struggle last year. That was a very COVID-related struggle. They just couldn't do the technical report that they needed to do because they couldn't get a QP, a qualified person, to their project because COVID, COVID, COVID just kept putting barriers up everywhere. It was actually quite insane. Um, but now Kuya is like on its way up again. And again, um, I think there's good upside there. So sometimes circumstances just crop up and, and that's where the patience that you mentioned before comes into play, right? And even when you're naming these losers, they may be losers in your portfolio for 2021, but you're not saying the company might not be successful in 2023 or 2024. That's something newer investors should understand. 
For sure. Yeah. And some of those positions I exited, like I sold Sassy and I exited Silver X because I just, like I said, I was done with the Golden Triangle and I was done with that particular team and mine restart in Peru. But others I absolutely still hold. I still hold Montage and I still hold Blue Lagoon because I, I think that there's that those stories have um, near term turnaround and, and they're already showing that this year. So, yeah. Gwen, before you go, uh, feedback from your listeners, anything pertinent that you could share anecdotal maybe that would have appeal to a broader audience? Hmm, interesting question. So I think um, there's been a lot of wondering when juniors will start to show some of the upside from the gold price, from the metals prices in general. And I say, fair enough. I absolutely feel your pain. You know, we're reading every day about copper prices being so strong and gold prices hitting new highs at least a few weeks ago. Um, and we're not seeing that so much in our portfolios and absolutely fair enough. Um, it's a crazy context out there for investors to shift their thinking over to, um, or to, to shift into the arena. That's always a slow process, right? It's like turning a freighter around. It just takes way longer than you think. Um, I do think that the concepts supporting gold keep building traction out there. And, you know, just like that freighter takes a while to turn around, these concepts take a while to really like sit with people, but I think it's happening. And so I know patience sucks, but if we can just have a little bit more and imagine gold, you know, sticking at 2000, staying above 2000, let alone hitting, you know, 2050, I think that we'll get to some magic number and then investors will turn in and start, you know, buying more actively. Yes, that all relates to the recession risk and how risk sentiment plays out in the broader markets. And so the role of safe havens for investors as a whole, and those questions are all, all exist as well around. But I do think that the gold argument is gaining traction. So I do think that that will happen over the next little while. But I also sympathize um, and empathize with the fact that uh, we wish it were happening more now. Quinn, your website is resourcemaven.ca for new listeners that maybe aren't familiar with you. Tell them what they'll find there. For sure. Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I write a, a weekly newsletter about what I'm buying and selling uh, with my money in the metals and mining space. Um, that letter comes out on Wednesdays and there's a free trial that you can sign up for there. If you're an accredited investor who likes to participate in financings, I do have a service to help. Uh, when I find a financing that I think provides good opportunity, I secure a large enough allocation that premium subscribers can participate alongside if they want. So that gives um, though that category of investors access to some deal flow there. And then there's a partner I have in my business named Peter Kraut, who writes a silver-focused newsletter called Silver Stock Investor. So if you are particularly inclined to silver, you can also find uh, a subscription to his uh, newsletter on the same website. Excellent. Well, Gwen, thanks for coming on the show today and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. 
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.